You know what it is. That's right. It's time to talk money with your money nerd and financial coach. Now, tighten those purse strings and open those ears. It's the Money Talk with Tiff podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Money Talk with Tiff podcast. Today, I have Justin Pogue on the line. Now, Justin was on episode 89, where he was diving into all types of rental secrets, for the renters, but I wanted to bring him back and I'll tell you why in just a moment. Um, But I wanted to bring him back so that way he can give us some more gems and just sprinkle them all around. Um, But for people that aren't familiar, Justin Pogue is an award-winning author and real estate consultant. His book, Rental Secrets, has already helped so many people around the country. Fox News, The Mercury News, SFGate, Realtor.com, ApartmentTherapy.com. They have all featured his insights for the benefits of their audience. Since 2003, he has developed and managed apartments, rental homes, and student housing across the United States. So he is definitely an expert, and I'm so glad he agreed to come back on the show so we can dive into more of these rental secrets because the gyms, <laughs> y'all need to go back and, and, and listen to episode 89. But anyway, thank you so much, Justin, for coming on the show. Yes, thanks, Tiff. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> yes, so let's just dive right in. So, because I left people on a cliffhanger in the beginning, why did I bring you back? Um, I wanted Justin to talk about what it's like for first-time landlords. So there are a lot of people out there that are trying to get into the game. I know I am one of them. And so I'm like, hmm, let's see what we can learn from Justin and see how we can, you know, kind of circumvent some mistakes or, you know, some lessons. Um, So Justin, first and foremost, I think it's important for people to understand what a landlord is and what a landlord does. So can we start yes, there? Yes, yes, absolutely. So a landlord is someone who actually owns a piece of property that they are then renting out to someone else who would be the tenant or the or the renter. There is typically a written contract. And let me repeat that. There is a written contract between the landlord and the tenant. That's how the relationship um, is established. And that's that's how everybody involved knows what their roles are and what they're supposed to do when. For those people who didn't follow that advice and didn't do a written contract, the laws of the state that you're in will dictate and govern all of those, that, that relationship and all of those aspects, but you're always better off having something in writing between a landlord and a tenant. The landlord is, and with that contract come responsibilities. So the landlord is responsible for maintaining the property. Um, and that's like landscaping and that kind of thing, but it's also repair and replacement of appliances, um, making sure that the roof doesn't leak and making sure that that the apartment you're renting is actually legally an apartment. Because in many cases, it, an apartment has, it must have a functional kitchen. It must have, um, it must have heat. Um, there are certain things that it that absolutely must have in order to be considered a, an actual rentable unit. And the landlord is also responsible for, now this is not necessarily specific to the tenant, but the landlord is also responsible for how they acquired the property. So they may have 
taking out a mortgage when they acquire the property. So they're responsible for making those payments on that mortgage. They're responsible for paying the property taxes um, that are related to that, to that property. So becoming a landlord, you are basically in effect becoming a small business because um, you're taking on certain expenses, you're taking on certain responsibilities. So that's a very kind of basic definition of what a landlord is and what a landlord does. Now, I want to backtrack a little bit because you said something very, very interesting. And so, um, you know, I get a lot of people, you know, all on my social media or reaching out and things like that saying they want to get into real estate. And um, they're like, okay, I'm going to start with, you know, maybe house hacking or, you know, multi-unit or whatever. Now, you have mentioned in order for it to be a rentable unit, it has to have certain amenities. So does that mean that if somebody, let's say, rents their room out in their house, um, do they still need to have that landlord tenant responsibility written, you know, that type of thing? Or like, where does the line get drawn with that? I, I do. Um, one of the things that um, we've done with my parents' house is we're actually renting rooms to young professionals. And I do have a written agreement with each of them um, as far as their duties and responsibilities. Um, and each agreement says, these are the things that I've put into the room because the rooms are furnished. So there's a bed in the room. There's a desk in the room. There's an office chair. Um, there's a television in the room. There's a bookshelf in the room. And I'm itemizing all of these things in that contract. So I specify that those things are to be coming back to me when they move out. I also specify the rules because it's a roommate situation. So I'm specifying the rules around having guests, you know, can, can, can someone visit you during the day? Can that person sleep overnight? If I want that person to sleep in the house overnight, what do I need to do to notify the other tenants that the other roommates that there's going to be this person here and how do I you know adjudicate that discussion? So things like that are, are in that are in that agreement. And so even if you're renting a room, I would still rec- I would still recommend having a written, having a written agreement um, for that, for that purpose. And it doesn't need to be, and that agreement doesn't need to be a 12 month lease. So with the people that I'm renting to, the lease has a term of one month and then it renews monthly after that. Um, And I did it that way because I didn't want any of the roommates to feel like they're locked into a situation that doesn't work for them. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's good a good point. That's why I wanted to go back to that cuz I know a lot of people are getting into house hacking, Airbnb type situations, yeah. you know, and doing a whole different way of being a landlord. I love I love the house hacking concept. Um it's I mean, you get a 3-4 bedroom house, you live in one room and you rent out the others. Some people have even gone as far as you sleep on the couch and you rent out all of the rooms. Um, okay. but the, it gets back to one of the, one of the really, one of the really interesting things that I, I saw, um, when I started getting involved in real estate is on HGTV, they used to have this show called income property. And I love the show because it, it was, it was one of their experts 
helping someone buy their first property. And they're like, okay, well, you could buy a single family house or you could buy a duplex and rent out one side. And now you're, and now your mortgage is this instead of this. And it really walked people kind of through that process. That show is not on the air anymore, but house hacking is, is taking that concept to, you know, even further where you're actually renting the rooms and you're bringing down your mortgage payment that way. And it allows you to start building up equity and saving and all of that stuff. But it also has some, a lot of other benefits too. Um, it's a way for you to start learning how to market your property so that you can attract tenants to it. You're living on premises, so you're interacting with the people that you're renting to on a regular basis. Since you live there, you're seeing how those people are actually treating your property. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of like, in a way, it's kind of like landlording with training wheels a little bit. Um, but it's a good way to get your to, it's a good way to get your feet wet and learn what are people in this market looking for. What are the things that I can add to my property to make it rent for more? Um, versus less. So in the example of my parents' house, we decided to furnish the rooms. So when you move into this room, all you need to bring is your suitcase and you and your and your set. That was the way we decided to lay that out. And for the most part, that has been very advantageous because um, that's what a lot of the people in that market are are looking for. We've had a couple of people who are like, no, I want to buy my own mattress and we'll put it on your, your bed frame and we'll put the old mattress in the garage. But other than that, coming the apartment, the room coming furnished has been very, very useful. And you'll need to add things like Wi-Fi and some kitchen appliances, dishes and those kinds of things, because those people aren't bringing they aren't bringing that kind of stuff either. But yeah, so that's so that's what we've done. And those are some kind of some of the benefits of starting out doing a house hack. Now, I do have to say this house hacking doesn't necessarily work for everyone, because even in the greatest roommate situation, if I'm in a relationship with someone else or if I have a child, I might love having a beer with you. And that's great. But that doesn't mean I want you helping to raise my kid. <laughs> right, right. That part. And see, that's why, like, because I've heard of house hacking like years ago, like even before I bought my house. And that was my only deterrence because I have kids. And so I was like, I don't really want just a random stranger being that this is a single family unit. I don't want just a random person, you know, in and out, you know, whatever. And so I stayed away from it. But darn, if I would have known <laughs> that I could have got a duplex or something like that, then yeah, yeah. that would But there are other amazing. interesting ways to do it too. So mm -hmm. you could, for example, take one of the bedrooms in the house, wall off the door that led to the rest of the house to so create an exterior entrance. And then that person only comes into that rest of the house to either like prepare a meal or whatever, and then they go back to their room. And that raises another interesting point with, with the whole house hacking roommate situation is sometimes people are renting a room and part of the agreement is when you come home, you stay in your room. 
you don't come out. You don't like you are you do not have access to the common areas. You have access to your room and that's where you stay. Now, with my parents house, I decided that I wanted it to be a true roommate situation. I wanted each person to have access to the common areas because I want them to mingle. I want them to build social capital with each other and take it, take advantage of all of the benefits of truly being in a roommate situation. Um, and it, and it has worked out very well. In fact, one of the roommates learned about a new job opportunity from a roommate that was only there for two months, um, and then applied and actually got that new job and has moved on from the job that he didn't like. So there's a lot of benefits that can come from being plugged into this roommate network. Um, but it has to be the right situation that you're, that you're moving into. Right. And see, I have so many questions around that, but I'm not going <laughs> to divert the episode because I have so many. I might need you back for a third time. Um, <laughs> but I, but um, I wanted to get in. What are some things that new landlords or ex- aspiring landlords like? What do we need to know? Like besides making sure we have something in writing, like what are some common pitfalls or common issues that new landlords run into? Mindset, <laughs> mindset, mindset. Okay. So you've saved this money for your down payment, 3%, 5%, 10%, whatever it is. And you are ready to do your first real estate investment. You've been looking, you've been talking to your, to your real estate agents, you're, you know, the, the ones that are focused on investments, because not all real estate agents focus on investing. And you've read every real estate investment book you can get your hands on. You've talked to the local real estate group. Like you've done all this research. The, those, the butterflies that are in your stomach about your first investment, they will never go away until you actually do the first investment. until you actually sign on the dotted line. There's a story that, that Robert Kiyosaki tells about his, about his wife when she bought her first duplex and, how her hand was shaking as she was signing the the mortgage papers, how she didn't want to quite let go of that cashier's check that was a down payment for the property. Like everybody goes through this, even those people who now we look back on them and they're like, oh, they're so successful. It must have been so easy for them. No, it wasn't. They had the same mindset problems that you have. They, They have to go through that stage in order to get to, to where they, to where they are now. Um, and, and I went and I went through it too, but once you actually sign on the dotted line, you're in, you're committed. And then a lot of those concerns start to go away and then other concerns crop up all the, what ifs, what if the, what if there's a, what if there's a flood? What if there's a fire? What if I rent to somebody who, who, who doesn't take care of my building? What if their kids, um, right all over the walls with crayon. What if the neighbor is, uh, there's a never ending supply of what ifs, but just know millions of people have invested in real estate before you. These millions of people have dealt with those issues successfully previously. So there is a, there is this kind of accumulated knowledge among landlords 
of how to deal with these situations. But being a first-time investor, A, you don't know that. And B, you don't know how to plug into that accumulated knowledge, which is part of the reason why you're here listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> but I I mean, I've dealt with I've dealt with fires, I've dealt with floods, I've dealt with tenants that didn't take care of my properties. And these are I'm not, I'm not bringing these things up to deter you from investing. I'm saying that there are there are ways to deal with these things. And and I'm going to say you're still standing, right? So you're yeah. still investing. You're still putting more money into properties and things like that. And so what I hear you saying is for new investors, get out of your own head. <laughs> get out of yes. your own head. Nothing is ever going to be perfect. But as things come up, you learn as you go. Yeah. And most of the and most of the what if scenarios that you have in your head will never happen. <laughs> it's all, I mean, some of some of them will. And I've and I've run into things, but you find ways to you find ways to handle them. So we talked about so we've talked about this flood situation. So if this was a 32 unit apartment building that we had two story and there were two separate buildings. The and the forecast had called for for rain and it rained like summer deluge like 40 torrential days and 40 nights. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um and behind the behind the property was a drainage canal. Well, during this whole situation there was you know like those tarps that cover like the back of 18 wheelers to keep things from flying off and that kind of thing. Well, one of those had blocked the drainage canal down river. So the water started to back up and then it backed up onto the property. And I'm, and our office at the time was um, on the second floor of one of these buildings in one of the apartments. And I'm just standing on the second store, second floor balcony, watching the water rise like that that is like the most uncomfortable feeling like this is damaging my property and this is putting people out and i cannot control this situation at all um so 16 of the 16 of the 32 units got flooded um we we did not have flood insurance because this was supposed to be, you know, we weren't in a floodplain or anything like that. And the bank didn't require it, um, which is a good, which is a good thing to, uh, to take a look at just because your bank doesn't require it doesn't mean that you should not look into it. Um, Cause really the bank does not determine your situation. You tell the bank what your situation should be, but that actually could be a whole nother show too. So what ended up happening was it was declared an emergency disaster area. They sent out FEMA and there were some, and there was an assessment of the damage and all of that. And they, the government was willing to make us a loan to, you know, for the damages and all of that. We ultimately decided not to take the loan. And the the short reason why we didn't take the loan was because the government determined what our loan payment should be. And that loan payment was not based on how much money we were going to borrow. So typically when you borrow money, like the less you borrow, the lower your payment is. 
Not with this loan. They decided they decided how much of your income they were going to apply to this loan, regardless of the amount of the loan. Yeah. That sounds strange to me, too. Um, Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So the government has their own rules and we opted not to take the loan because we didn't want to play by those rules. So we had to find another way to resolve the situation. So uh, I ended up talking to one of our local contractors, our carpet cleaning guys. They had water extraction equipment. So we, we extracted the water from the carpet. We tore out those carpets because wet carpet is really heavy. So we had to get the water out of it first. And then luckily in our situation, we had concrete floors um, that had already been sealed. So we just came back in and sanitized everything because once the water backs up, like you don't know what's in it. So we just came back, we sanitized everything and then went ahead and installed new flooring. And we were able to finish that in about three days um, after the flood happened. So big lessons learned were, number one, your relationships with your contractors are gold and treat them as such. They are experts in their field. They have information and access to resources that you may not have. Let me tell you, I had never been through a flood before. I had no clue where to start, but I just started asking questions. And I kept asking questions till I got to the point where I had what looked like a workable solution um, based on our budget. Oh, and I left out the part where I called the uh, disaster recovery company. So there are these companies out there that you call them, you know, they'll come out and they'll fix all the damage and they'll they'll make it like it never even happened, right? Well, I called this company and they wanted $2,000 per apartment just to tear everything out. They weren't going to put anything back. They were just going to tear everything out and sanitize it. And I'm like, okay, so two grand times 16 apartments is 32 grand that I don't have. <laughs> quick math i don't have it so yes. yes um so that was that was part of the reason why we opted to go to go this to go the other route and use the relationships with with my vendors um to figure out a plan to resolve the situation and like the vendor came out like the vendor came out like that night it was like 8.30 at night when we were, when I was, when the vendor came on site and we were talking out potential solutions to this. And I mean, just the fact that the vendor was willing to show up at 8.30 at night, that tells you how strong that relationship was. So it's important. Those, so those relationships are really important. So treat your vendors like the valuable resources they are. But the main line to the story is that is this can be overcome and it doesn't have to be crazy expensive to overcome it. Yeah, we probably spent a few thousand dollars on, you know, new flooring and the renting the extraction equipment. And, and we had some contractors help tear out the carpet. But compared it wasn't to it wasn't 32 <laughs> and even and even spending the 32 that was only half a solution they were just going to tear everything out we still needed would have needed to spend more to put things back the way they were so yeah there are going to be some there are going to be some issues and challenges along the way but these things people have already seen these things they've come up with solutions this they this has been dealt with before and you are not alone Right. So, okay. Let me just recap some of the lessons that we've learned from this. So first mindset, mindset, mindset. Um, 
Everything that you think is going to happen probably won't. But even when it does, there's always a way to get through it, get out of it, you know, whatever you need to do. Definitely treat your contractors like the gold that they are um, because they can be an invaluable resource when things like this happen or, you know, you need some work done or whatever. Um, And then also there was one more point that I had got. Oh, let me just do these two points real quick because, you know, I'm always thinking about opportunities. Y'all, if y'all were interested in disaster recovery, it's apparently a really lucrative field. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then also um, contractors, if there's any contractors out there, tap into these, you know, property managers, apartment complexes, what what have you, because you will be the person that they call on to treat like gold whenever they have a situation like this. So I wanted to bring those up too, because, you know, I'm always looking for opportunities for people. Um, And then there was one other point that I wanted to make from that story as well. um, That was kind of like a hidden gem, but it was there. And now I've lost it. So maybe it'll come back. But with that being said, what other things, things should we look out for? Maybe one more thing that we should look out for is new landlords. So I'd say I'll bring up a couple of points. One is um, related to choosing the investment property that you're looking for. And one's related to after you found the property that you're looking for. So when you're choosing to find, when you're looking for a property to invest in, it's not just the property itself. It's the neighborhood. Who are who are your neighbors going to be? Because, I mean, you can't pay enough to have good neighbors. And it's also in terms of it's not only who owns the property, but it's also who's managing the property. Because I've been in situations where a driveway into a property that I've owned has been shared with properties that are next to that are next to mine. And some of those property managers were really easy to work with when, you know, one of their tenants' cars blocked the driveway or people were double parked or whatever. You just call them on the phone and be like, hey, this situation going on. They would call the, they would call their tenant and get it resolved. Other property management companies, they really didn't care. Like as long as the person's paying rent, I don't care that double park, that's your problem kind of thing. So look at the properties that are around the one that you are interested in purchasing and see how those properties are managed, what do they look like, who's living in those properties, how do those people act? Because if those tenants act poorly, that can drive away good tenants from your property. So I would so I keep that in mind when when looking for property to purchase. Now, after you've 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 found the property, you've sent in the you've sent in your offer, they've they've accepted and all of that and it's now down to, you know, setting up the the time for the closing. Set your closing time for the morning. And I say that because among these documents, you're going to be likely signing a mortgage and the and the mortgage paperwork. Well, actually, let me let me back up. Read the paperwork at the signing and pay no attention to the eye roll that you get from the title people when you start reading. Um, because they're just thinking about what they want to have for lunch that day. And you're the one who's going to be saddled with his mortgage for 30 years. 
So right. and don't I, worry I about made, them. I made that gesture because that was me. Like any contract I get, I'm sitting there reading that bad boy. Mm-hmm. If you want me to take it home, I can take it home and study, but I'm not signing anything until I understand. So no, absolutely <laughs> read it. And and the reason why I say you should set your closing for the morning is because if you have questions, if things need to be changed and you need to contact that lender, you need to make sure that your closing is during the hours that they are open. Also taking into account, they may be in a different time zone than you are. So you don't want to be, you don't want to have to rush through situations because you're on the West Coast, they're on the East Coast, they're closing in half an hour and you got to get this person on the phone because you need to get a clause in your contract changed or you have a question about it. Um, and then that can put off your that can put off your closing. So the little things like that that I've learned along the way have been very, very helpful because this is likely the first time you're that closing at that closing table is likely the first time that you are seeing any of these documents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And see, that is so that is gold because I didn't even think about that. I think mine was like at one o'clock PM. I don't think I got out of there until like five or something like that because I was just marinating over the paperwork. Um, and I mean, they were like, they were sweet about it. They were like, Oh, take your time, you know, this, that, and the other. But in my head, I'm like, I know y'all trying to get out of here. But I'm going to take my time because this is important to me to understand. So with that being said, um, I did want to tell you, I'd like to say, do a put in a quick story on reading contracts and all of this. So one of our we had rented to a student. The school year was over and they wanted to get their security deposit back. Okay, so we're like, okay, well, we'll send you a check. He's like, no, I want you to send it via MoneyGram or Western Union or whatever. I'm like, okay. We can get it to you faster, but you're going to pay the fees for that service. Okay. So I go into the the, the uh, retail location for one of those services, and there's a counter there, and the woman's sitting behind the counter. And I walk in and say, okay, this is what I'd like to do. And she puts a piece, she doesn't even look up at me. She puts a piece of paper on the, on the counter for me to look at. And, you know, in typical fashion, I start reading the contract. You want me to sign something, I'm going to read it. And then I realized this is page two of a two-page contract. So I said, where's page one? She said, excuse me? I said, this is page two of a two-page contract. Where's page one? And she says, oh, okay. And she proceeds to spend 30 seconds looking for page one. Now, that tells me something very interesting because she's been slapping this piece of paper on this counter for countless people, and they've all just been signing it. So there are many people who have signed this contract to, you know, send money or whatever, who have no idea what the contract says. And it's gotten to the point where she doesn't even really need to have page one around at all because nobody asks for it. So, yeah, that was that was an eye opening experience at the you know money exchange store. <laughs> and see, that's the thing. Like and that's why I tell people educate yourself as much as possible, because unfortunately, not everybody's open, honest, you know, want whatever your best interest is to be first. And so the more, you know, and the more you educate yourself, the better you can hedge against any, you know, malicious intent or anything that could potentially go wrong, like you could have 
been like everybody else, probably hundreds of people that day and just said, okay, let me just go ahead and sign when my name is needed and not even think to realize like maybe I'm signing my life over. <laughs> like you have no idea. So yeah. um, that is a good and, nugget. Uh-huh. Yeah. And really think about not just that situation, but any situation you're walking into, you have a plan A. Plan A is is plan A because it's the you're hoping it will create the best outcome for you. But also when you walk into that situation, don't only have a plan A, have a plan B and sometimes even a plan C. Leave yourself the mental bandwidth to have options because options really help keep your brain working and flowing and keep the ideas flowing. Because if you reach a situation where you don't have any options, now you feel like a deer in headlights and thinking stops and you're panicking, you're in fight or flight mode. Like, let's just push all that to the side, create options ahead of time. And now you're now your 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 thought process will be much less stressed um, than it otherwise would be. And you know what? I want to just tag. We'll be here all day just tagging back and forth. But I wanted to tag on to that because that's the danger of like this situation that we're in now, like the housing market and everything, because it's like, you know, if a house is out there, it's like gone like this. Like, for instance, a house across the street, it had an open house one day sign saying under contract the next day. And so, you know, people are like really like just diving right in, not really taking time to do their due diligence. And then there's people that, um, you know, feel like they have to compete too. And so they're like, okay, I got to jump in. I got to jump in. And so that's kind of like the danger of this whole housing situation too. Um, Just back to your point where, you know, sometimes you just got to take your time and think things through. And if you feel like, oh, this is my only option, then it kind of like clouds your judgment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And on that note, when you're looking for a property, you watch these, you know, HGTV shows or whatever, and people coming in like, oh, this place is so great. It's so clean. It's so perfect. Blah, blah, blah. That's what the average buyer is looking for. They want a place that's perfect. But there's a lot of competition for the places that are perfect. So if you want less competition, look for the properties that aren't perfect. Look for the diamonds in the rough. Look for the for the properties that have been banged up a little bit, um, where the previous tenant did scrawl crayon all over the walls and whatever. Because those properties that have problems, a lot of people are going to walk in and they're going to turn it right around and they're going to walk out, which eliminates a lot of your competition. Now you're looking for properties that have problems that you can actually solve. But that's another, if you change your perspective a little bit on what you're looking for, it can make it much easier to find that first investment property too. You're looking for properties that have some that have some issues. Some of the it, some of the issues, it may have cosmetic issues, it may have landscaping issues, it may have property management issues. So all of these and all of these things are not necessarily expensive to solve. They just need to be done. And that can that can put you on track to find, um, you know, that diamond in the rough that there may not be as much competition for. Mm, And that's such a gem. Um, That's such a gem because I'm just thinking back to my property, my house, and it did have a slight landscaping issue. Now, granted, that did not stop 
a bidding war, but um, it did have a slight landscaping issue. So I feel like that's why I got such a deal that I did. Um, so that is very, that's good stuff. Like for people to look out for where you just have to do one of these numbers <laughs> and then it'll be okay, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, with that being said, Justin, thank you so much for being on the show again. I'll probably have you back because there's still so much we still have not talked about. Um, <laughs> but if people were interested in learning more about you or your book, where could they find you? Yeah, so absolutely. You can find me at rentalsecrets.net um, as well as I'm on Instagram, Facebook, you know, the usual social media suspects. Um, and we're putting out tips for landlords and renters on a daily basis. Nice. Awesome. Well, well, I highly recommend Justin. Definitely follow him. He drops so many nuggets. Like I said, check out episode 89. He was on that one talking to the renters on some secrets that you can use to get properties, you know, cheaper, you know, get in a little better. Um, and now he's dropping gems on being a first time landlord. So he has a wealth of knowledge. And I also have his book, Rental Secrets, and I might be auctioning off one. Um, but anyway, thank you so much, Justin, for being on the show again today. And I'm so grateful to have you. Happy to be here. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening, joining, and being a part of the Money Talk with Tiff podcast this week. You can check Tiff out every Thursday for a new Money Talk podcast. But if you just can't wait until next week, you can listen to previous podcast episodes at moneytalkwitht.com or follow Tiff on all social media platforms at Money Talk with T. Until next time, spend wise by spending less than you make. A word to the money wise is always sufficient. <laughs>